This episode of New Politics was recorded on the 6th of August, 2021, and produced on the land of the Wangal people. Welcome to the New Politics Podcast. In this episode, the poor vaccination rollout and continuing lockdowns dragging down Liberal Party governments. If the price is right, is it time to come on down? And we look at all the latest developments in federal politics. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, Barnaby Joyce's bartender. Thanks to all those new subscribers on Patreon. Over the past couple of weeks, we've had a mini podcast on the secrets of news poll and an explanation for why the Labor Party supported the Stage 3 tax cuts. And we'll be putting out some more information as time goes on. You can get all of the details about our Patreon page at our website, newpolitics.com.au. And some people have been complaining that we've made the claim that we're unbiased but consistently support the progressive side of politics. Now, we're in lockdown in Sydney at the moment, so I've had a bit of spare time on my hands, but I've gone through all of our podcasts over the past four years and we've never actually made that claim. We've said that we are independent. We don't get support from big business, advertisers, benefactors, political parties or unions. We're supported by micro donations, book sales and t-shirt sales. So we just call it as it is. We're fearless and we're independent. Nobody tells us what to do, do they, David? They can try. They can try all they like. And I get a bit annoyed at the claim that we're biased because, of course, we're biased. Everybody's biased. We are aware of our biases and I, at least, and I think Eddie does too, tries to temper them. One thing I will always be biased towards is compassion, competence and honesty. I don't see that in either the federal government or the New South Wales government. I see it in other governments around Australia, including the Marshall government of South Australia and the Gutwine government of Tasmania. Now, I don't see it all the time, but I do see them in general. You've heard us discuss the Howard government, a very competent government, particularly in its first two thirds of its history. Did we like it? No. I can certainly see where there's competence, where there's honesty, and probably the most important for any government, where there's compassion. There are Labor governments who have behaved terribly uncompassionately towards those less fortunate. And when that happens, it'll be called out. The Sydney lockdown is now entering week seven and Sydney has decided that it shouldn't be keeping all of this to itself. So the lockdown has been extended to the Hunter region of New South Wales and Victoria has commenced its sixth lockdown, although that's just going to last for one week. These lockdowns have to be done. There's no question about it. But we have to point out yet again that these lockdowns would have been avoided if there had been a better rollout of the vaccinations and if the New South Wales government had acted far more quickly when case numbers of the Delta strain first started appearing in early June. And that's just not our opinion. Many epidemiologists agree that the Sydney lockdown was far too late and still is far too little. And that's a sentiment that 50% of people in New South Wales agree with, according to the recent Essential poll. 
We've always suggested that it doesn't really matter what a government keeps saying or if it keeps massaging its message with spin and manipulation, the electorate will see it differently if that doesn't match up with their lived experiences. The support for the New South Wales government for the way that they've managed the COVID response has gone from 73% in March, and that was just a few months ago, to 47%. So they are tanking politically. There has been a great deal of secrecy surrounding the supply of vaccines and other key data relating to the pandemic, but it's time for governments to stop massaging their public relations message, just come clean and put all of their efforts into managing the pandemic effectively in Australia. They'll be found out at some point by the public anyway, as these opinion polls are suggesting. You can see it. I'm probably a little bit having a more extreme experience as I'm in one of the severe lockdown suburbs with police driving past at least four dimes a day. With the army being deployed, police helicopters are here all the time. It's being felt in most parts of Sydney anyway. There's, you know, people are unable to go to work. People are unable to live their lives as they probably would prefer. The homeschooling, which is a bit of a misnomer because homeschooling is where the parents are teaching, parents are supervising, and I'm not saying it's terribly easy, but it's not easy on teachers or students either. This is all having an effect. And for the Prime Minister and the Health Minister to call the New South Wales approach gold standard, when Australia just has to look over the border to Victoria, to South Australia across the Tasman to New Zealand or north to Queensland to see that there are better ways of managing things. I think Sydney knows it's been sold a pup. The only thing that amazes us who've been watching closely is why it's taken so long for these effects to happen. And there's probably a whole range of reasons that we won't have time to go into. But it's not surprising to anyone who's been watching closely. So the New South Wales government has slumped in the public perceptions of how they've handled the pandemic. And that, of course, is going to happen if you keep saying that your government is never, ever, ever going to implement lockdowns, and then they actually do. And then when they do implement that lockdown, it's far too late and causes outbreaks all around Australia. At the moment, just 24% of people in New South Wales are suggesting that the New South Wales government has handled the pandemic well. And 47% are now saying that they're handling it quite poorly. And that's just not within the New South Wales government. For the federal government, the people who actually thought that the government was doing a good job in its COVID-19 response went from 70% in March, that was just a few months ago, five months ago in fact, and now it's at 38%. In August, that's almost halving the perception of whether it's doing a good job or not. There would be a reason for concern for the federal government and also for the New South Wales government. The only new rule of elections that I can see is that if you are seen to mishandle the pandemic, you will lose. If you handle it well, you will win. I know that there will be people out there saying, oh, but Gladys is doing a great job and we've got to keep the economy open. And one of the things I think the pandemic has showed us is that the economy is a false construct, that there are other ways to do this. And um, this isn't the radical socialist in me talking. This is looking at what's happened over the last 18 months and seeing what is valuable. Obviously, health is valuable. Productivity is valuable. How many of us were truly productive before the pandemic? It becomes a really interesting question. 
we've seen the failure of really two people. And this whole pandemic can be traced back to two people, Scott Morrison, Gladys Berejiklian. The buck stopped with them in all cases of deciding when and what to do. Yes, says health ministers, Brad Hazard and Greg Hunt, who are fairly culpable, but had New South Wales locked down quickly, might not have spread to Victoria. Had New South Wales locked down properly, it might not have spread to Victoria and Queensland. And both of those can be traced back to the, the two people who were most loudly praised, mostly by themselves, for handling things well. And we've also received a report that a tennis club on the North Shore of Sydney had many of its members vaccinated with the Pfizer vaccine. Now, it, it wasn't initiated by the tennis club itself, but they were contacts of a doctor who is a member of that club. And doctors can have family members and close contacts vaccinated, but I'm not sure if it's meant to be used for members of a tennis club that they just happen to be a member of and sure get as many people as vaccinated but there are shortages of the Pfizer vaccine and they should be used for other more important groups that are eligible to receive them and not members of a tennis club. There's also reports of ABC journalists receiving Pfizer vaccines simply because they were in the know. There was a case where the entire year 12 at St Joseph's and elite school on the North Shore we find that there were many members of the St. Joseph's alumni that are also members of the New South Wales government. Vaccines being moved away from labour-held areas on the central coast and the Hunter region and redirected to other regions. So it's, it's no wonder that the public is becoming quite cynical and sceptical about the way that the New South Wales government is handling the pandemic. We have a government who is so tainted and so compromised by sports rorts, by the car park rorts, by pork barrelling, pork barrelling, pork barrelling, to the point where the leader of the National Party, who has seemingly no grasp of parliamentary procedure anyway, has said that he doesn't see why pork barrelling is wrong. He's standing up for his region. It's not really about that. It's about the fair and equitable distribution of resources to everybody on a needs basis. It's not about getting the most for your region so you can be re-elected. It's appalling, the open rotting now. The Hunter Valley, uh, sorry, the Central Coast lost 40,000 doses and the South Coast lost 40,000 doses. Apparently, they only needed about 40,000 doses. So where are the rest of the doses going from? I know that out the far west of New South Wales lost doses too. People's appointments have been cancelled up to November. This is not well organised. This is the type of incompetence I was talking about earlier. Well, regional Australia does have a shortfall of vaccines, and that's for both types, for AstraZeneca and for Pfizer. And there are many parts which still don't really have access to vaccines. And especially if they're in a safe seat, whether that's a safe seat held by the Labor Party or the National or the Liberal Party, they're not a priority. It's not really a political concern if it's a safe seat. So we can now see why the federal government wanted to control the supply of vaccines, because they could then direct vaccinations to the different areas for political benefit. And it's becoming a little bit like a medical sports rorts program. There's no publicly available information about where these vaccines are going. Some areas have a surplus of AstraZeneca, but most areas have a shortage. And then all of a sudden, Scott Morrison announces 180,000 Pfizer vaccines are going to be made available for Southwest Sydney. 
where do these numbers come from? We don't actually know. And that's, I think that's the big issue. This seems to be replicating the entire behaviour of the sports rorts program from a few years ago. Now, you can sort of say, well, okay, well, that's a sports funding program. That's for stadiums in key regional areas. That's no big deal. But this is not about sport. This is about public health. This is a completely different issue. And we expect the government to behave in a non-partisan manner when it comes to public health, but they couldn't even resist the temptation on this matter either. Not knowing how to run a government, they run it in the only way they know how, and that is to hide, obfuscate, reward favourites, pork barrel, bribe, spin, deflect, and treat it all as a PR exercise, not as work that needs to be done. We've never seen this before. Even previously incompetent governments, like the McMahon government, still got policy done, still got work done. McMahon was despised by most of his cabinet, but he had a decent cabinet who were working to the best of their ability. Sometimes that ability wasn't very high, and but sometimes it was. And we don't have that at the moment. We've got illiterate unemployables whose whole aim for being in parliament, it seems, is to get as much money and influence as power as they can. And we're in a health crisis. It's just not good enough. And also the New South Wales Health Minister, Brad Hazard, a few weeks ago, he mentioned that accessing vaccines was going to be a little bit like the Hunger Games. I thought he was actually joking at the time, but maybe he wasn't. Maybe it's a bit more like Soylent Green, Logan's Run, Animal Farm, 1984, all combined. At the time, I thought, look, he's been watching too many dystopian movies, but it looks like Brad Hazard was right all along. It is like the Hunger Games. We can throw in uh, The Handmaid's Tale as well. Hunger Games meet Handmaid's Tale meets Logan's Run. Maybe a bit of uh, Terry Gilliam's Brazil. We're in crisis. We're in a bigger crisis than I think has been acknowledged because it's just not being managed properly. And it's not too late to turn around, but the opportunities that have been lost will cost far more than what they're telling us they will. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud, Spotify and Amazon Audible, or find us at newpolitics.com.au, and you can now follow us at Patreon. Up next, if the price is right for the vaccination rollout, is it time to come on down? We've come a long, long way together Through the hard times and the good I have to I have to praise you like I should We've come a long, long way together Through the hard times and the good I have to celebrate you, baby I have to praise you like I should There's been strong messaging coming from the federal government that the main issue behind Australia's low vaccination rates is vaccine hesitancy, as if that's all the fault of the Australian public, without looking at themselves for claiming that it wasn't a race, but now it is, 
allowing people from their own side of politics, such as Craig Kelly and George Christensen, to spread misinformation about COVID vaccines, as well as their own efforts in clogging up supply to key areas around Australia. Now, it's not just the one factor that's causing low vaccination rates, it is improving, but blaming the public is in keeping with the efforts of the federal government to avoid responsibility and hand it over to someone else. The leader of the opposition, Anthony Albanese, has suggested a $300 incentive payment for everyone who was vaccinated by the end of December. And that would certainly turn it into a race, but that was immediately dismissed by the government, even though they've actually suggested that offering gift vouchers, frequent flyer points, and even a $10 million weekly lottery system could be considered as an incentive to get the country vaccinated. First four contestants are the new prices right. And now, here's the star of the new prices right, Ian Turpin! I can just imagine Scott Morrison calling out the names in front of a hysterical studio audience on a Sunday night, asking them to come on down to collect their $1 million vaccination prize, if the price is right, of course. But is this becoming a bit too much like a television quiz show or is it just a new way of monetizing the outcomes of public health? There's a certainly a percentage of the population who are hesitant to take the vaccine, sometimes for quite wacky reasons, sometimes because they're worried about the health implications of it, because the government's messaging on the health of, has been appalling. The government has built this rod for its own back by mixed messaging on AstraZeneca. It both wants AstraZeneca to be the main vaccine, not least because there's been insider trading from government ministers on it, but it also botched Pfizer and Moderna coming into the country by sending in the wrong people to negotiate, by not taking it seriously, and by balking at the cost. It's cost so much more to be in constant lockdown now. Yes, there are those nuts, those who listen to Craig Kelly, those who were pushing hydrochloroquine as an absolute cure for it. Funnily enough, President Trump didn't take hydrochloroquine when he had the option. And I note Craig Kelly hasn't taken it either. So I don't know what the motivation is. It goes down to a compliant and poor mass media. It goes down to too many conspiracy theorists in Parliament who should never have been pre-selected and then should never have been elected. A lack of intelligence and a lack of intellectualism in Parliament. There are intellectuals and intelligent people in Parliament, but they are mostly in opposition and crossbenchers, although I don't want to dabble crossbenchers with the same brush. It's just been an utter debacle, and I don't know what they think their legacy is going to be, but from where I sit, if they make it into any future history of Australia's, their reputation will be trashed. It's as simple as that. Offering money to people to go and get vaccinated, to me it sounds a bit like a gimmick, but many economists have suggested that offering incentives to drive a good policy outcome, and in this case it's a health outcome to get the entire population vaccinated, well, that represents value for money. It does seem like a TV game show, but ultimately governments do need to be pragmatic as long as the processes that they use to achieve these outcomes are ethical and that they actually do achieve the outcomes as well. The other point is that there have been 
many criticisms of Albanese's idea to offer a $300 incentive to get vaccinated. And everyone, of course, is asking about the cost of that, the questions that are never asked of the Liberal Party. But offering incentives, whether it's gift cards, frequent fly points, cash or hamburgers, whatever the case, if the suggestion is that it's good policy when the Liberal Party proposes it, well, it also has to be good policy when the Labor Party proposes it as well. The other consideration is that this is a good political outcome for Albanese. It helps him to get noticed at a time that he needs to be noticed. It also provides a small stimulus mm. benefit to the economy as well. Many in the media have pointed out that $300 isn't that much. Well, perhaps not to a well-paid journalist in the mainstream media wearing blinkers, but for yeah. low-income earners, $300 is a lot of money. I also suspect that Scott Morrison is annoyed that he didn't come up with the idea first and he went over the top to suggest that it's an insult to the Australian people. But everyone that I spoke to said, sure, give me the money. Where do yeah. I sign up? I know it's public money, but instead of this stimulus where you, you've got to prove that you need the money, I don't know why they just didn't take work out you know, $1,000 for everybody. And any active bank account, just put it in. And then that becomes part of your taxable income. And if you weren't eligible for it, well, you pay tax on it and maybe even pay it back at 100% tax rate. If you were eligible for it, you know, great, fantastic. And that sorts it out. Instead, they're trying all these, where do we cut it off? Where do we do it? And people who were on unemployment, uneligible for it. Then you get Jerry Harvey and West Farmers who pocketed that. So again, saying we'll give you $300 for a vaccine, great, but isn't there better ways of stimulating the economy? Well, there are many ways to stimulate the economy during a pandemic, and $300 would be just a small amount, of course. But the other reason for Morrison's resistance to offering incentives, and Morrison is the ultimate game show politician. He'd be very quick to soak up political gimmicks and marketing opportunities. Mm. So he'd be the first one to offer incentives for a vaccination if he could. But he knows exactly how many vaccines are available. And yeah. he's only pushing it so far because he realises that there are just not enough vaccines out there. And that's why he's making a half-hearted push for people to get vaccinated and then blaming vaccine hesitation. And this is going to cause problems for Morrison. Many people are having difficulties accessing vaccines. When they go and try and make a booking to get vaccinated, they're told that there's a four or five week wait. And it seems like the government has been caught up in a pincer movement of its own making. Robert Menzies basically told the public service, you handle the policy and its rollouts, we'll handle the, the politics of it. Scott Morrison has said, we will handle everything without knowing what anything is. That's a big difference. So has Gladys Berejiklian. And again, it's this faction of the Liberal Party of neoliberal free marketeers with no view of anything outside this very narrow, how do we carve this up for our donors and our mates? and no other view of society. And it, it's an indictment of all of us because we keep voting them in. Now, it's no surprise here, but Morrison has changed his tune yet again. For many, many months, he was saying this. You know, it's not a race. It's not a race. It's not a race. Now, this is not a race. 
It's not a race. And so the key is, it's not a race. But he's completely changed tack. And now it's like a gold medal competition. He keeps saying that we have to be like the Olympians and get vaccinated as soon as possible. And this is quite a huge about face. He's also talked about lockdowns. Several months ago, he was going on ad nauseum about lockdowns should be avoided. It's a last resort. We just don't do that sort of thing in the Liberal Party. But now he's totally changed that around. It's now a nece- Lockdowns are now a necessity. It's the best way forward. He was praising Gladys Berejiklian for not having lockdowns, and now he's, he's all for it. So the Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, he also joined the chorus. He's now come down very strongly to say that lockdowns are the most effective way of managing the pandemic and the most cost-effective way to limit the impact to the national economy. But several months ago, he was attacking the Victoria government, saying that lockdowns are not the answer, they can't keep doing it, and it's costing the economy far too much. So the inconsistency here is absolutely massive. He attacked the Labor government when, when they did a lockdown, but when a Liberal state government did exactly the same thing and implemented their lockdown, well, he can't support them enough. And national leaders and national treasurers shouldn't be behaving like this. But is this contradiction something that the electorate will take notice of, or do they just not care enough about it? I I think Josh Frydenberg is in a lot of trouble in uh, the seat of Kuyong. Now, the seat of Kuyong is, I think, possibly the most extraordinary or at least the most interesting seat in Australia. It's only had seven members since its formation in 1901. Three of those have been party leaders. Two of them were attorney general. One was treasurer, Frydenberg. The other one, Andrew Peacock, was foreign affairs. So it is a seat that is a very stable seat And it is a seat that is unlikely to swing except for very good reasons. Now, an independent did win the seat in 1921. That was John Greg Latham, who won as an independent, but on a get rid of Billy Hughes ticket. Once Hughes was gone, he joined the uh, Nationalist Party, which eventually morphs into the Liberal Party of Australia. Josh Frydenberg has taken the seat from, I think, a 25% margin or something, which Petro Giorgio held. And Petro Giorgio was not a terribly conservative figure. He was much more of the stripe of the liberal that Menzies was talking about, what used to be called progressives. Frydenberg could easily lose the seat to a strong independent. Tony Abbott lost Warringah to Zali Stegall. John Howard lost Benelong to Maxine McHugh, a strong and capable independent. It's easily possible that Josh Frydenberg could lose his seat. And he'd been quite harsh on the lockdowns without really thinking about how that was affecting people not in his seat or even some in his seat. For all their talk of mental health, they don't really care about mental health. We can see that by the way they fund mental health programs why they try and shove it off to underfunded uh, mental health organisations who do their best. Don't I'm not slamming those organisations, but they're underfunded and under-resourced instead of somebody like Josh Frydenberg assigning someone uh, to fix the policy. Petro Giorgio, he was a strong performer, but he was a moderate. He was a strong moderate within the Liberal Party, and because of that, he never proceeded past the stage of backbencher, and that indicates the state of the current Liberal Party. And someone like Josh Frydenberg, well, some people say, oh, yeah, he's a bit of a moderate, but he's not. He's really not. He's totally opposite to someone like 
Petro Giorgio. Petro Giorgio probably, if he had have played his politics better within the Liberal Party, probably would have become treasurer, but he didn't. He, he stayed true to his values and his ideals, and he was a moderate within the Liberal Party, and moderates just don't get anywhere within the Liberal Party or in the modern Liberal Party. So... And you're absolutely right. When Petro Giorgio left that seat, he held that seat by 25%. At the moment, it's held by Josh Frydenberg by around 6%. There's a very strong chance that he will lose that seat at the next election. Based on what we know now, things, of course, can change over the next six or seven months. But at the moment, he's looking like losing that seat. I think what he will do to try and save him is roll Scott Morrison, if he can get the numbers, to try and get that 4 to 5% swing that a party leader usually gets but Stanley Melbourne Bruce in 1929 didn't get it John Winston Howard in uh, 2007 didn't get it and I think that Josh is less popular than either of those two men by a long way so we will see yeah I'm gonna take my horse to the old town road I'm gonna ride till I can't no more I'm gonna take my horse to the old town road I'm gonna Ride till I can't no more. I got the horses in the back, horse stock is attached. Head is mad at black, got the bushes black to match. Riding on a horse, ha, you can whip your horse. And during this week, we had the return of Parliament, and oh my goodness, what a circus act this is. We had Barnaby Joyce drunk in Parliament. Now, I don't think it's a question of whether Joyce was drunk or not, I think it's a question of whether he had. 0.05, 0.08, or a 0.15 blood alcohol level. Now I, I, I like I like going to the movies, and I can't I can't but I can't but always remember Howard Hughes, Howard Hughes the aviator. But yeah, Howard Hughes the aviator. But the Labor Party got Albo the advocator. Yeah, the great the great advocator, the great ideas man, the great ideas man, straight from the pool room. Oh, the Deputy Prime Minister will resume his seat. The Leader of the Opposition on a point of order. Yes, Mr Speaker. I'm, I'm forced to bring out the on-weirdness no, stuff. The, I have no idea what this is, leader, but it's leader nothing Leader of the Opposition the will question. resume his seat. And I think we might as well leave it there. Whilst he was asked about alternative policies, they need to be alternatives to the issues laid out in the question. He'd obviously been drinking, but you could smell the alcohol from around the chamber. It's probably time to ban alcohol in Parliament House. Now, Joyce is not just some sort of Les Patterson type of member of Parliament who can wallow somewhere on the backbench. He's actually the Deputy Prime Minister of Australia. I work in the music industry, and while it has a reputation for big drinking, and people remember, for example, Jimmy Barnes drinking a whole bottle of scotch on stage. That was 30, 40 years ago. Around the time I started in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, the attitude had changed. That if you turned up drunk or even seeming to be drunk, it was not a good look and you probably weren't going to be asked to play at that venue again. This is the music industry. It's just not acceptable. Now, I should disclose here, I don't drink. I've never drunk. I am always wary that people are just thinking, oh, I'm a wowser. You don't like it, so you think nobody else should like it. That's not really my opinion. People can choose to do as they wish. But it's not appropriate for anyone at work to be drunk. After work, it's nobody's business. But during, it's just not on. 
and we've got to stop this. And having breath testing and drug testing in Parliament, I think, is the only way to, to knock it right out. Well, everyone's got a right to have a drink whenever they wish to, within reason, but Parliament House is a workplace. The parliamentary dining room is not too far from the House of Representatives. Tony Abbott, back in 2014, he spent $51,000 upgrading the parliamentary dining room for the Prime Minister and the Deputy Prime Minister, and at the parliamentary dining room, every drink is available. Any drink that they want to have there, it's all available, it's all free, And you can imagine if someone's got a little bit of a drinking problem, which obviously Barnaby Joyce has got, they just walk in and say, look, I'll have a shot of that, I'll have some schnapps, I'll have a red wine, I'll have a white wine, I'll have a beer. They can just have whatever they want there, and that's absolutely outrageous. So you're right, there needs to be new rules about drinking on the job in Parliament House. It's probably best if they just introduce a blanket ban on alcohol within Parliament House. Obviously, people like Barnaby Joyce and other MPs, they can't control themselves. So it's probably best to have that responsibility taken out of their hands. Yeah. Um, imagine you know being a partner at Citibank, just to pick a company at random, and turning up to meetings drunk. At the very least, they'd put you into some kind of rehabilitation and try and fix you more likely they would get rid of you and put someone else who can control themselves it's just extraordinary and i know it's a 1850s model where they were all gentlemen and could apparently hold their drink no it's it's just not and speaking of drinking christian porter is the stand-in leader of the house of representatives and this to me just seems like an insult peter dutton is the actual leader of the house of representatives but he is absent But David Gillespie from the National Party, he is actually the deputy leader. But for some strange reason, Morrison gave the position to Christian Porter. My understanding is that if your leader is unavailable, well, you put in the deputy leader. Simon Birmingham has suggested that Liberal MPs always fill the position when the leader of the House is absent. But why officially have a National Party MP in that position. As the Australian of the Year, Grace Tame, said, it's a slap in the face for women to have an an alleged rapist take up that position. Yeah, it's just not appropriate. Someone suggested that he's got a $500,000 legal bill he has to pay, and so Morrison has helped his friend by giving him a massive pay increase, even for the week, to help pay down that debt. That's not appropriate in any case. It shows the contempt they have, or maybe just the ignorance they have for women. Porter managed to get 27 pages of evidence suppressed. I'm guessing that it didn't show him in a good light. We can't know, of course. But you tend not to suppress the evidence that shows you to be innocent. He should not be in Parliament. He's going to lose the next election. The reason that he's still there, of course, is that his going would force a by-election that they won't win, and then they're not a majority government anymore. But what they don't seem to understand is that principle and ethics and integrity actually matter more than power, and that if Scott Morrison had said, he's done the wrong thing, we condemn it, we've sacked him and we're going to by-election, we will let the electorate decide, that would probably do a lot better than holding him in there, losing credibility and legitimacy day by day. 
And there was also a Closing the Gap report released this week, and that was first announced in 2008 by the Rudd government. And it's an annual report providing progress in 16 key target areas for improving health and wellbeing outcomes for Indigenous Australia and a pathway towards true reconciliation. Once again, it's a disappointment, and once again, it's indicating that only three of the 16 progress targets are being met, and that's improving birth weight for Indigenous babies, early education attendance, reducing the number of Indigenous teenagers in youth justice. Now, that in itself is good news of some sort, but it also shows that there's a long, long way to go on addressing all of these issues. Scott Morrison did announce an additional $1 billion package to improve these measures, but $378 million is for a redress scheme for stolen generation survivors. Now, that's a very, very important issue, but that's a reparation about the past, leaving just $622 million for additional support to address those 16 other target areas that they're falling behind in. Morrison did wear an Indigenous tie to Parliament. Now, while that's a good symbolic gesture for a Prime Minister, just announcing it yet again that we need to do better and wearing an Indigenous tie for the day is just not enough for closing the gap. It's, it's just not. It's really upsetting. Of course, everything he announced, let's, let's be brutal here, and we're going to get another comment about our bias showing, but he's not going to do it. If we look at his past record, he's just not going to do it. He'll announce it, and in two years, none of that money will be there, and none of those programs will have been started. Now, of course, there's an election between now and then, so that might be part of it. But he has announced it, I think, knowing that people will forget and will get into an election campaign. Uh, There's this belief that there's no votes in Indigenous affairs. That may be true, but it doesn't mean that you do not work with the communities to get the very best outcomes for all of them. And by very best, not slight improvements here or there, but absolute quantifiable results that show real improvement, not just in the short term, but in the long term and permanently. And he's not capable of doing that, it seems. The other big news is that Brian Houston, the head of the Hillsong Church, he's actually been charged for concealing alleged sexual abuse performed by his father. Now, his father died some time ago, but Brian Houston had the opportunity to report those allegations of sexual abuse, and he refused to do that. He's actually in Mexico at the moment, and during a pandemic, he was given permission to leave Australia just a few weeks ago. I would have thought that if the, the police would have known that they would be making this announcement. I would have thought that he'd be a flight risk, so why would he allowed to leave? Australia does have an extradition treaty with Mexico, so if there is an issue, he'll be forced to come back to Australia. But this, to me, seems to have the potential to cause a lot of embarrassment for Scott Morrison. Scott Morrison has previously said that Brian Houston is his mentor. He infamously tried to invite Brian Houston to an official state dinner at the White House with Donald Trump when he visited the United States in 2019, and the White House had the good sense to veto that. There's quite a few issues that could develop out of this, and it will be interesting to see what Morrison does here. Morrison is a front-runner and only wants to see himself surrounded with the good news, so let's see if Brian Houston remains as a mentor to Scott Morrison or if he's disowned once he becomes an inconvenience to him. That's highly possible. Scott Morrison is on record of claiming he's never said stuff, despite the fact there is video and audio of him saying it. It is interesting that he managed to get permission to go to Mexico a couple of weeks back. 
you know, the New South Wales Police doesn't just wake up and say, huh, we better arrest so-and-so this morning. There's obviously been a lot of work to make sure it's a fair arrest because it's a, these, these are very serious charges and the police don't want to get it wrong. Let's be fair. These are charges that, if proven, will destroy Houston's life. And if proven and are true, then that is deserved. But nonetheless, it's going to be a long process to go from being arrested, being charged and being tried. Someone said probably the only shock that Houston had of this being announced was that Scott Morrison wasn't able to stop it. I have to say I share that that shock. And I'm wondering if the heat was just too much on the New South Wales police that they couldn't ignore this one anymore and that it had to become a priority. I don't know, and I know that some people don't like it when we make assumptions, but something has happened in the last couple of weeks that has forced this. I hope justice is done. Well, there's also a history of people hiding out in Mexico. Let's hope that he doesn't get an ice pick or anything like that happening to him. But the most important thing is that he comes back to face these charges. The charges have been made, so he just can't run away from them. So let's see how that one pans out. Mexico's not far from countries where we don't have extradition treaties, so that'll be interesting. You know, maybe he'll do a quick flip down the border. That's it for this new politics podcast. Thanks for listening in. If you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very, very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It helps keep our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.